we are off. It is a pleasure today to be joined uh, for the third Truth and Consequences podcast by Hoppy Kershaval, who is the host of Metro News Talk Line, a statewide radio show in West Virginia. And as I'm told by various trusted political observers, the go-to person when it comes to understanding politics in West Virginia. So thank you for being here today, Hoppy. Well, Michael, thank you. My pleasure. It's a small state. That's why, you know, one guy is <laughs> small state. Well, you know, it's funny. I reach out to a lot of people. I ask this question, who's the person to talk to? And they all came back with your name. So well, I figured, thank you. I figured I, I was best to reach out to you. So the reason I asked, uh, you know, Hoppy to be on today, cause I, I wanted to better understand Joe Manchin, who has become one of the most powerful members of the U.S. Senate and also Pottsville, West Virginia. And I assume many people in Washington also want to understand what motivates Joe Manchin. So I think we're going to we're going to sort of focus mainly on that and also the politics of, of West Virginia. And I want to start on that last point first, if I can. You know, I was looking at the um, I'm a I'm a huge geek when it comes to political to elections and and especially presidential elections. And I looked and I noticed in 1996, Bill Clinton won the state of West Virginia by 15 points, uh, a, a smashing victory. Four years later, uh, George W. Bush nearly wins by five points. And then in this 2020 election, Donald Trump won by 39 points. So what the heck happened in West Virginia that caused this incredibly dramatic political shift over the last 20 years? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. Michael, in 1928, Herbert Hoover, uh, won the presidency and carried, I think, 40 states, including West Virginia. West Virginia was a Republican state. In 1932, we're into the Depression, FDR beats Hoover. West Virginia is one of the many states that goes Democratic. I'm not going to take you to ever through every election, but and West Virginia stays Democratic for 80 years, 70 years. In the 2000 election, Al Gore and George uh, George Bush, and Al Gore ignores West Virginia. It's always a blue state. It's going to be a blue state. George Bush starts to get some polling results that show, wait a minute, this state might be up for grabs and starts to campaign in West Virginia in the closing weeks of the election. Charlton Heston, then the head of the NRA, goes to southern West Virginia, which is blue as blue can be, and and says, if Hillary Clinton is, uh, you know, if Al Gore is elected, then, you know, you're going to lose your guns uh, and the nation's going to turn to the left. And George Bush wins West Virginia. Which was unprecedented. And by the way, if, 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 if Al Gore had won West Virginia, like, like every Democrat usually did, Florida wouldn't have mattered and Al Gore would have been president. Right. Right. But West Virginia, so West Virginia starts this red lean. And then as the National Democratic Party goes farther to the left, it starts to leave a lot of conservative to moderate Democrats in West Virginia behind. Mm -hmm. And so West Virginia goes, starts to trend red and now is a deep red state. And now probably within the next few months, West Virginia, the, the party registration, which you referred to 96 was two thirds Democrats, one third Republican. Republicans will overtake Democrats in West Virginia within the next couple of months in terms of voter registration. So I'm curious, like a, a lot of states that have, that have moved more red have done so for because of cultural issues. I mean, this sort of triumvirate that we talk about a lot of guns, guns, God, and it used to be, used to be gay Americans, although that's less of an issue now, I think. But certainly guns and God were two of the big issues that sort of shifted uh, a lot of blue states, purple states, red. Did that, is that sort of what happened in West Virginia? Yeah, and West Virginia is, is a conservative state. This is a twice-a-week church state. This is Sunday and Wednesday. Uh, a lot of Christian conservatives. 
Uh, it is 94% white. Um, and it is just, just a conservative place. And a lot of Democrats, when, when Democrats dominated the state, dominated the state, there were a lot of conservative Democrats. Right. And, and they were Democrats in name only because they had to be Democrats in order to have any chance politically. So when the thing started to turn, a lot of those Democrats then became Republicans or were, or were free to be Republicans. But West Virginia, I don't think, has moved that much. I think it's more about how the National Party has moved and the, the issues that have been taken on by the National Democratic Party. And uh, and 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 also the, the labor movement has diminished in terms of its significance. The UMWA is not what it once was in West Virginia. Um, so you saw this. Just as you said, you know, the God and guns and some other cultural reasons that uh, West Virginia has shifted to the right or, you know, has shifted to the right, but also been in a place as the National Democratic Party has shifted more to the left. Right. Right. And so I guess the obvious question then would be, how is Joe Manchin still getting reelected in West Virginia? I, I know he won by just three points in 2018, but considering you know that I think Hillary Clinton got 26 percent of the vote in 2016, and 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 Biden got 29 percent this time. Right. That's pretty remarkable. So how is he doing it? Well, I, I want you to imagine a needle, and I want to I want you to imagine a thread going through this needle, and that's <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, Joe Manchin. First of all, Manchin has 100 percent name recognition. Right. He's been in politics all his life. He had family members that have been in politics. He's been governor twice. He was secretary of state, uh, elected to the U.S. Senate. He is well known, number one. Number two, his party is not so much the Democratic Party, but the party of Joe Manchin. He doesn't run as a Democrat. He runs as Joe Manchin. I'm Joe Manchin. You know me. I'm Joe Manchin. And he's not out there um, hawking the Democratic agenda. And third is he is a really, really good retail politician. You know, he's got some Bill Clinton in him in how he can uh, work a room, uh, engage people, uh, people like him as a person. And fourth, you know, he's pretty he's pretty effective. I mean, he he manages when he got to Washington. He didn't he didn't just jump to the to the Democratic side. He's 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 he is um, effectively navigated a narrow middle ground. Mm. That, that, that brings him criticism because it's a conservative state. He gets a lot of heat. Always Joe sticks his finger near to see which way the wind's blowing, but also that works his advantage because he's just, he's just balancing that act just so. And he's done, he's done it effectively. So that's, that's a big question I have. I mean, you know, is, is Joe Manchin a true moderate Democrat? Is he doing this for pragmatic reasons, political reasons? Is it some combination of the two? I mean, I, I guess I, I think people have been asking this question when I, before I did the interview. I asked people, what should I talk about? And they're curious how much of this is genuine with Manchin and how much of it is really just sort of a, a political uh, um, um, what, way to present himself to, to, to the state. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you another story. The, uh, when he was governor, there was an ongoing dispute between Marshall University and WVU about whether they should play in football. And Marshall wanted to play and WVU did not want to play. And Manchin got it in his mind that they should play. So Manchin gets the athletic directors of both schools in a room with the box of door and says, okay, let's get a deal. And Manchin wants a deal. That's his nature. He wants to get along with people. He wants to have friends and he wants to do a deal. He is very 
pragmatic. He's not an ideologue. Now he can have, he can have specific opinions about things and does, but he's much more pragmatic and trying to build consensus, legitimate consensus than he is about a particular agenda. He wants a deal. So uh, I guess this raises a question. I'm curious about what what makes Joe Manchin a Democrat? I mean, it, would it be easier for him just to switch sides and be, as I know, many many politicians in Washington have done, including including the governor, yeah. just become a Republican? Well, uh, he's always been a Democrat, and he's been successful as a Democrat, and I think he does feel some allegiance to the Democratic Party. I'm not sure how much. And also, look, I mean, he's now he is in the catbird seat. Yeah. Right. I mean, he doesn't owe there are his critics in West Virginia say, oh, he just does what Chuck Schumer tells him to do. Well, the reality is he doesn't need Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer needs him. Right. So he's in this very powerful position now as this 50th Democrat. And he's in a position to make deals. He's in a position to try to bring both sides together, which he talks about all the time. So there's no need. There's no need for him to switch parties. You know, it's, it's interesting. I read something, uh, I, I read a lot about Manchin before I spoke to you. And one thing I sort of noticed is the strain in his kind of ideology for, for him that there is an ideology is he comes across as kind of a old school, almost like New Deal economic populist. That he is, you know, obviously somewhat culturally conservative, but on economic issues seems to be much more of a, of a populist than I think we traditionally, we associate with these days with the Democratic Party. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably true. I know he has some heartburn about the size of this um, COVID package, mm-hmm. and it is it, it thinks that two thousand dollars is too much. So I know he's concerned about that because he's concerned about the debt, or says he's concerned about the debt. So uh, populist, yes, but I don't think to a degree that just a, a true populist of of you know spending spending all this money. Uh, for example, in the, in the COVID plan. So he has populist tendencies, but I wouldn't call him a true populist. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess the the question is, what, what are the, the issues that are the levers for Joe Manchin? In other words, if you're trying to, if you're going to make a deal with Joe Manchin, what, what does he want in return for a deal? If it's on COVID relief, if it's, uh, on, on, you know, uh, climate change issues, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but any one of these issues, what, what does he care the most about? I, I think a deal. <laughs> <laughs> a deal just for the sake of a, a deal. deal. I mean, he wants, he wants bipartisanship. He wants a deal. He wants people to work together. I mean, he is, he wants, he wants to like and be liked. Hmm. Interesting. And he wants people to find a way to get along. And he wants, have you ever talked to him? No, I've not actually. Okay. So if you have, he starts and it, he starts, Hey buddy. Hi buddy. Hey, buddy. And that, that sometimes can mean you're in trouble. Like, listen, buddy, I want to tell you something. Right. But he wants for people to, it sounds cliche, but I've known he wants people to, to come together and, and find some common way forward. And to get there, he's willing to give ground and get ground. He was instrumental, along with a few others, of getting uh, the deal restarted uh, in, the, in the closing weeks of the Trump presidency on a right you know, on, on another COVID package. So I, I, I don't mean to diminish, I, I don't want to diminish that that he wants good things to happen, but he's willing, I think, to sacrifice to try to get some good as opposed to just no good. He hates, I'll tell you another thing. He, the first couple of years in Washington as a senator, he was miserable. 
because as governor, and go- being governor of West Virginia is like being mayor of a medium-sized city, okay? You run the thing. And Manchin would have two phones going, and, I mean, he would do what he – w- he would be working on a huge piece of legislation and also getting a drain pipe in. You know, he's just – He's just doing things. He wants right. to get stuff done. He has a notoriously short attention span. Hmm. So he is not. And so Washington was driving him nuts. You know, oh, you got to work on this bill for two years. You know, two years. I can't. I can't. So he is very anxious to 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 change the speed at 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 which things happen. And maybe that's not a perfect answer to your question, but I, because I'm just telling you his how he works and his motivation. It's. I mean, what you're suggesting is it sounds like he cares more about people getting along and making deals and the actual substance of the deals themselves. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to, again, I don't want to diminish that he doesn't care about substance. I, mean, I think he clearly cares about substance. He cares about West Virginians. He wants people to have better lives, those kinds of things. But in, he, he believes, I think in order to get there, you have to get deals. You know, you can't just have this loggerhead all the time. You can't just have uh, a, a stalemate because you, then you don't get anything. So so, so I guess that, point. yeah, I think for Democrats hearing that, it probably gives them a bit of agita because I think a lot of Democrats are sort of holding out hope that, um, that he will change his mind when it comes to the filibuster rules. And from what you're suggesting, that seems unlikely to occur. I, I don't think it will. He's on now. Manchin has been known to change his mind. Okay. That's, <laughs> he will do that, but he's on record. On my show and other others who've talked to him as as not giving in on filibuster that he wants to maintain uh, the, the filibuster. So he has not indicated that he would give ground on that. And I, in fact, I think that his unwillingness to get rid of the filibuster, perhaps he and one or two others, might be the primary reason why Mitch McConnell has now said, "Okay." We'll get a power sharing deal because McConnell feels confident that there aren't enough Democrats to get rid of the filibuster. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. That that, that was obvious. That was McConnell's explanation. And and you know I, when I hear that, I think to myself, does Joe Manchin has to realize that by taking the position he's taking, he's basically handing the keys to the Senate to Mitch McConnell to block everything he wants to block, with the knowledge that he'll never face a consequence because Manchin's not going to scrap the filibuster in response to this. And I just wonder about that. I mean. At what point does, if McConnell is as obstructionist as he has been in the past, does there get a point when Manchin says enough is enough, we have to get something accomplished up here? You know, I guess that's possible. Anything's possible. I, I would think that Manchin is, is, although holding out hope that, that some sort of com- the compromise, that the force of will of he and some others, the coalition of the willing in the right. Senate can, can bring about bipartisan agreement on big issues. That's what I, I I think that's his core belief, candidly, bipartisan consensus on core issues, on core, on big issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, is there anything, you know, that I know this, I know, I know you're looking for, you're looking for, well, what is the, you know, who is Manchin? I mean, what, what are, what boxes can he check and, and what, what, right. is, what is his true ideology? And it's, it's a little bit malleable. Okay. Well, that was sort of my next question. I mean, is there anything on the on the on the Democratic wish list, whether it's immigration reform or raising the minimum wage or voting rights or, uh, you know, campaign finance reform, anything along those lines that would cause Manchin if if this was being blocked by Republicans to say, OK, this is too important to me. I want it. I want this to pass. And I'm going to you know suspend the filibuster for this one issue. 
Well, that, that's a good question. And, and if there's something, and he's going to be the incoming chairman of the energy and energy committee. Right. And so if there's, when there is climate legislation, I would guess it's going to end up in the energy committee going through there, but he uh, has a, has a deep sense of protecting his home state, which is an energy state and ensuring and, and using his position to try to ensure that West Virginia is not further damaged by whatever climate legislation there is. That doesn't necessarily mean blocking it, I don't think. I think right. it means what can you get? Can you get a whole bunch of money for carbon sequestration, uh, for example, uh, that would help protect some, you know, the coal industry for the next, you know, couple of decades. Uh, so he's, I think he wants to be pragmatic about climate legislation, but also not ensure that he protects his home state and the workers in his home state. I think that's, I think of those pending issues, I think that's huge for him. Yeah. The one thing I noticed that was really interesting, you know, I think there's an, there's an image of Manchin as being the defender of coal country in West Virginia and the defender of the coal industry. But one thing I, I was struck by was that he has been, a, he's, he's pushed, it seems quite a bit on um, uh, infrastructure on uh, on alternative energies, particularly as much as they, they they benefit West Virginia. So from that perspective, I, I don't get the impression that he is opposed to dealing climate change. I just think he it just seems that he wants to make sure that people in his state are protected if those changes go through. Yeah, I, th- I think that's I think that's well said uh, because you in today's environment, you, know, you look for example, power companies independent of regulation legislation are moving more toward alternative fuels, even in West Virginia. We're not building any new coal-fired power plants in this country. Uh, but still, there's a lot of coal, and there's still a lot of a lot of coal to be mined, and there are a lot of companies that supply coal companies and those kinds of things. But, you know, Manchin realizes that you can't protect that forever. And so what is the, what is the, what is a way forward? And is there a way forward where you at least provide some protection, um, some, some glide path for that industry forward, as opposed to just trying to draw a line in the sand, which you're not going to win. Right. Right. That is, I mean, that, I think that goes against the, the, the perception people have of mansion, um, which I think would, you know, you would think would give some comfort to, climate change act, environmental activist that he may not be this obstructionist everyone makes him out to be when it comes to this issue. It's just a question of where is that, where is that support or what, on, in what way is that support going to materialize? Is right. it going to be on more money for alternative, you know, energy industries? I mean, I suppose that's, that seems like a one possibility. Well, remember this, he brought, and this was very controversial. He brought Hillary Clinton in the 2016 campaign to Southern right. West Virginia. Right. And met with coal miners because, and supported Hillary Clinton because he was convinced that Hillary Clinton, uh, and, and she made the comment, which was a little bit out of context about putting coal miners out of work. And the fact is that what, going forward, miners are going to lose their job. But I think that Manchin was, was betting on if Hillary Clinton were president, we could probably get a lot of money though for, um, for, uh, carbon sequestration or you know, job training or whatever was necessary for that next thing for coal. You know, I noticed that he made a comment about a week or two ago about wanting um, four trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, which is, you know, that's a lot of money. Uh, and it was such a, a large amount of money uh, and a large figure that I thought, well, I wonder if he's sort of sending a signal with that, that he, you know, one way to one way to to, to approach Mansion on on various issues is to 
make infrastructure a a priority. Uh, is I assume and there's always stories about Robert Byrd and all the all the money he got <laughs> brought to West Virginia. That is that all? Is that mansion was he like to follow in those footsteps as far as uh, you know remaking infrastructure in the state of West Virginia? Nice Robert Byrd reference there, <laughs> of course. But um, well, the days of you know Robert Byrd as a uh, former long time and, and powerful member of the Senate was able to to send a lot of money to West Virginia unashamedly, unabashedly. Sure. And, um, but though I think the way they do it in Washington now, th- those days are kind of over. I don't think you can do that as much as you once did. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what Manchin has in mind on that. Uh, maybe that's a negotiating tool. I, I haven't talked to him about the infrastructure issue. And um, again, I mean, this is not, uh, not to be critical of Manchin, but you you can talk to him one day and he's his mind is focused on one thing. And then the next day his mind is focused on another thing. I mean, he jumps around a lot. So mm-hmm. I don't know where he is on, on infrastructure. Do you, I mean, do you think, and that's a great question. I think people ask, this is, comes up a lot also, you know, one of the issues on filibuster, I, at least now, especially now that Joe, McConnell has sort of called him out and said, well, I'm not going to gain filibuster rules because, you know, Joe Manchin said he's not going to change them. If down the road, Joe Manchin decides, you know what, I think we need to spend the filibuster for X, Y, or Z issue. Do you expect or do you think that would lead to a political backlash in West Virginia or just something that he has enough political currency in the state to get away with? Joe, as you pointed out in 2018, Manchin won by just three percentage points. It was a pretty close election with Pat Morrissey, Patrick Morrissey. And uh, this state, again, has gone even more red. And uh, Manchin... Uh, he he's on the bubble. You know, 2024 is going to be very interesting for him. He'll be, let's see, I think he's 73 maybe. So he'll be getting, he's in good shape and it looks great, but I mean, he'll be getting up in his seventies. Is he going to run again? If he runs again, there will be Republicans lining up to take him on. Sure. And sure. he will face, he had a tough race in 2018. He'll, he'll face, I think his toughest race ever if he runs again in 2024, because of, uh, um, because of the direction that the state is gone, because he's not perceived as being a, um, conservative to moderate. Funny thing, I mean, in Washington, he's seen as one of the most conservative democratic senators. Mm-hmm. And in West Virginia, he's perceived as this, you know, sort of left center, <laughs> you know, left center guy. Right. Um, so, you know, long, long story short, would it, yes, yes, there would be a backlash. Anything, anything that he did, that is anything he does that is perceived as being dictated by Chuck Schumer, right, would be damaging to him. That's interesting. Okay, so he really—I mean, so that—that's—it's a lot of it, the perception of him within the Democratic Party. So what you're saying is that by being seen as outside the Democratic Party, that is really the key to his political maintaining political support yes. in West Virginia. Yes. Yes. And that's part of the sort of the anti-Schumer, anti-Pelosi um, narrative that exists in this state. So if there are 49 Democrats who support filibuster reform and, and he is the, the one standing, you know, and saying, <laughs> no, it's not going to happen, that may hurt him in Washington, but it's not going to hurt him in West Virginia. That's, a, you know, I, I've written about that, too. And, and there's he's in he's in the catbird seat, of us, as I've said, because they really need him. But. Does anybody really want to be the one? You know, you don't want well, to be the, the thing, one. Right. You, you want to be the one of the three. You, know, right. you don't want to be one of right. the one. 
So that would be a that would be a big that would be a big test. That would be a big test for him. Um, I, 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 and, I and would he risk losing support among Democrats in the state? I mean, in other words, how how firm is his hold over the the Democrats who who, was, who took? I mean, the twenty nine percent Democrats who voted for Joe Biden, for example. Yeah. How how strong is his hold over that that group if he continues to be the uh, you know the stick in the mud, if you will? Well, that's that's a good question too. I mean. And that's a question for the that's a question for the master. You have to ask Manchin because Manchin is the negotiator. As I said, I'll go back to the original point. He's the negotiator of the of the thread through the needle. Right. So it's um you know it's a conundrum. Now you know West Virginia has, although a diminished Democratic Party, it has a liberal wing. You know, it has a uh, uh, you know thirty percent of the Democratic Party is a liberal wing party of Bernie Sanders, but they don't have enough in and of themselves to mount somebody who could beat Manchin. Right. Okay. But if it was a general election and they said, well, I'm not voting for Manchin or the Republican, then that could hurt them because Manchin would need the Democrats and a few Republicans to win. And I assume that if Manchin does not run for re-election in 2024, that there is little hope for Democrats of holding on to that seat. Be very hard. Be very hard. Uh, I don't, I just wrote a comment about this the other day that there's a couple people, but I, but this, this state has in the last election, Michael, the governor who switched from Democrat to Republican right. won re-election handily. All all positions on the board of public works went to Republicans. The leg, state legislature Republicans now have super majorities in both chambers of the legislature. Uh, Capito easily won re-election. It's just. One of the leading Democrats who I talked to just on background, I said, would you think about running again for um, position statewide race? He said, I'd think about it. He said, but I don't, his quote was, I don't know if a Democrat can win statewide in the the state again. Really? And and I assume not any, there's no real, there's no trends, at least in your view, on the horizon that suggests that uh, things are looking better for Democrats in the state. There's nothing that you, that you look out there and say, well, here's one, one way Democrats can increase their, their, their uh, political opportunities in the state. You know, what, what, a couple points about that. One is there is a, there was a, a candidate, Stephen Smith, who put together a progressive movement in a run for the Democratic nomination for governor. And it was kind of in line with the Bernie Sanders. It was a very, it was a very grassroots campaign, a progressive campaign. And he raised a lot of money just in small contributions, which I didn't think these days you could do. But, but he, he peaked, he reached a threshold. And you just, you, it's hard, it's hard to get above that, that threshold. Um, and also West Virginia is, as I said, is, is 94% white and it, it's not getting, we don't have people moving here. So you don't have an influx of people who are different right. culturally, right. who might be more inclined to be democratic. So there, there's not any demo, there's not any demographic, the demographics don't support, um, increased possibilities for democratic candidates. Right. So Manchin's sort of the last of a dying breed who are basically. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's the, he is the, he's the last holdover of what was democratic dominance in this state. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think for, for, for national Democrats, it's, you know, it's funny. I, I, I see this argument a lot of people saying about Manchin, well, you know, he's bad for the party because he basically blocks things from happening. But I, I look at the flip side, which is that there are three Democrats in states that Donald Trump won. Just three. 
Wow. Sherrod Brown, John Tester, and, and Joe Manchin. And, and when you, can, you look at the margin of, of victory for Trump, it's not even comparable to, what, to, to West Virginia. Uh, you know, in a sense, you could say, yes, he blocks things from happening, but without him, Democrats would simply not be in the majority. There's, just, there's, there's no other Democrat who could obviously win in that state. Um, I think the question then is really, like, how, how far is he willing to go to have a legacy, to have, a, to, 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 to have the next four years, if those are the last four years he's in public service, for them to be something that he that he accomplishes something uh, and not just, uh, um, you know, deal making, but but like really significant things that actually help the state. I mean, how, that's got to be important, I think, to him, I would imagine. Maybe I'm wrong, but I would imagine that has to matter somewhat. You know, I don't know. I, I, that's an interesting question. Maybe I should ask him sometime when we're just talking, but he, he I haven't spoken to him about about legacy. I, I think, though, in my conversations with him, it's more about. A, a lifetime, I don't want to speak for him, but my impression is a lifetime spent trying to improve the lives of West Virginians. I know that sounds cliche, but he has dedicated his life to public service. Right. And I've never seen anybody in politics in West Virginia who enjoys it as much as he does. Hmm. You know, he just, he, he hates the, the, the delays of the Senate. He hates the pace, but he just, he like, he likes to be involved in stuff. You know, he's always involved in stuff. He was a very effective governor mm-hmm. um, during his tenure. And, um, you know, he's so I, I think his legacy would be I'm a guy that tried to get stuff done. You know, I worked hard every day for the people of West Virginia. But when I look at, for example, the, the key items of the Democratic agenda going forward, things like a $15 minimum wage, things like uh, infrastructure investment, new energy ideas, uh, expanded health care access, those are those are things that I would imagine would help people in West Virginia. Uh, so it's sort of a question of, uh, you know, for, I, I understand the idea of getting, get, getting things done to help people in the state. Those are things that would get things done. But again, it does rely in part on Manchin being willing to, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, uh, maybe Mitch McConnell will turn over a new leaf, although I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> it does depend upon, it seems, on on Joe Manchin being willing to, you know, take a stand and say, look, I like filibuster. Like, I, I think we have to compromise, but there are limits to how much I'm willing to, to do this. And I don't, you know, it's my impression is that he doesn't feel that way. That there isn't there is, that, that he's not willing. Just, I'm to, sorry. I'm sorry, that he, sorry, that he, he's not willing to sort of to, to go against that idea of of being a deal maker to get these things accomplished. I mean, the, the, the two things are almost irreconcilable, the two positions. I want to help us Virginians. And I also want to not get rid of the filibuster and compromise Republicans. What if they're not going to compromise? Yeah, I mean, yeah, boy, I don't know. I mean, I, I think we're back to the, it, I think, let me, let me see this. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this goes. Yeah. That, that we agree on for sure. Yeah, I mean, rather than, rather than going too far and predicting what Manchin will do, because he can also be a little bit unpredictable. I think it's just going to be fascinating because he, it, I mean, you're talking about him. The Washington Post did a big thing on him. Uh, he's, he's been on the Sunday shows because everybody recognizes the position that he is in. Right. And that position is a position of power. It's also a position of peril. Right. Um, you know, politically. So I'm, I'm just really anxious to see that. Like, uh, we've been talking a lot about impeachment, uh, on, on my show and people bring up Manchin. I said, well, he's going to have to vote. You know, right. you can't not vote. Right. So there will be a record or on, on, um, you know, the COVID bill, he's going to have to vote. So 
It's going to be, I'll be fascinated to see, to see how it goes. If I remember correctly, he voted to impeach the first time, correct? He voted to convict the first time. So, I mean, and there was no political backlash in the state for that decision, as far as you can tell. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there was. I mean, there was. I mean, people, yeah. Because, again, 69% of West Virginians who voted, voted for Donald Trump. Right. So they, they, you know, they held that against, uh, certainly held that against Manchin. And so why, why do you think on such a position like that, that, you know, clearly it wasn't, he wasn't going to be convicted. So why on a situation like that would Manchin take that kind of a vote? And why, what do you think drove him to do that? What he said was, and, and sometimes I probably don't give politicians or, you know, or Manchin, you know, enough credit because as I, as I probed him, why did you do that? And he told me on and off the record, he said, because I thought what what Trump did was wrong. Hmm. And I and because usually, I mean, you do politics, I do politics. You're thinking, yeah, I know. But why did you really do that? Exactly. <laughs> why did you really do it? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I know what you said, but why did you really do it? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, that's what he said. I thought that it was I thought what he did was wrong. It was the right thing to do. Like, oh. Oh, okay. Well, okay, fine. sure. That's good. That's good. I'll take that. Uh, and certainly you can imagine him doing that again this time as well. I mean, if yeah. he did it the first time, I'd certainly imagine the second time. I mean, I think this is going to be the great question we're going to, we're going to sort of experience over the next two years is to what extent, you know, Joe Manchin is malleable on the things that, that matter to national Democrats. I mean, I think really that is the number one question yeah. because he really, I mean, people talk about him and Kirsten Cinema as being another person who poses a filibuster, but she's in a, in a trending blue state. Mm-hmm. In a place where she I, I can only go so far, I think, in blocking a Democratic agenda. I think for Manchin, it's a little different. And you raised this question before, and I think it's a really interesting I- issue. On the one hand, he seems to benefit from being, again, uh, uh, on the other side of where national Democrats are. But does he really want to be the one guy out of 50 who basically <laughs> is saying, I'm not going to go along with this? And I, I, you know, I wouldn't want to be in that position. I'm sure, I mean, it just sounds like a not a great position to be in. I mean, you have a lot of power, obviously. But you have a lot of cross current cross currents affecting you, you know, your own political future and then also that of your of your party. Well, and the there's so many so many uh, angles. To this. Uh, so if he is the one and, and to me, when you just step back, I mean, the Senate or the House is all about the numbers. They just you know, they care about the numbers. Right. What are the numbers? Right. Where are the votes? Who's got do you have the votes? Count the votes. But if Manchin is not going to be with the Democrats on the biggest votes, then what's the benefit for Democrats of having, of having Manchin in there. Now they're, they're not going to get an, I don't think they'll get another Democrat out of West Virginia. Right. So maybe Manchin's like, well, that's, that's the only guy we got. We don't have any, we can't get anybody else. We better try to make Puerto Rico a state, you know, I mean. Right. And I, and I, I, I can you imagine him? I mean, you'd have to spend the filibuster to do that. I can't imagine that he would be supportive of getting rid of the filibuster to make DC and Puerto Rico states. No, no, no. Not at all. Even though it would increase his own political power and not have Democrats. But yeah, I guess he wouldn't. Would. I think he's against. I think the last I heard was he said, well, I need to review that, but I, I don't see him as, as being in favor of that. Right, right. I mean, I mean, again, and even if he was in favor of it, he'd have to suspend the filibuster. And it's hard to imagine that that's the issue that he's going to suspend the filibuster, uh, over. Yeah. And again, I, and the last thing I'll ask you, I mean, this is a, the, the, the one thing I sort of focus on. He keeps saying he won't eliminate the filibuster. But I always say, well, that doesn't mean he won't reform the filibuster because there's plenty of ways to reform it without getting rid of it. I mean, is you say he changes his mind a lot. Is he the kind of politician where you can sort of find those little, you know, 
inconsistencies and in what he's saying and sort of say, well, maybe he's keeping the door open a little bit here. Well, that, yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. I mean, I hadn't picked up on that. So uh, to repeat myself, Banchin looks for a way forward. He looks for a deal. He looks, he looks for a, to find a way. So, you know, maybe, maybe so, maybe so. <laughs> well, we're just going to have to wait and see, I guess, because it's, it's going to be a, Interesting next two years, to, to say the least. And, of course, four years, and, and if he runs for re-election, I mean, it'll be even more interesting, I suppose. Absolutely. I suppose if he decides not to run for re-election, maybe he'll feel liberated somewhat. Well, I, I, well that's, I mean, that's that's a good point. I mean, if you're not running for re-election, then what's it matter, right? Right, right. I think that's the number one. And, and to, to your mind, do you see him running for re-election at this point? I, <laughs> yet another story, okay? Please, is, I love yeah. it. <laughs> is uh, when... When Manchin was um, two years ago, I guess it's been two years now, where uh, Manchin was thinking about running for, yeah, it was before the 20, it was thinking about running for governor again, okay? It's because he hated the Senate and everything moves too slowly. He's thinking about running for governor, not for Senate. And he loved being governor, loved being governor. And uh, so I would talk to him and talk to people around him, you know, and say, well, what's, um, I said, well, he, Told me today he's he leaning toward running for governor, and my source might say, "Well, he told me he's thinking about he's doesn't think he's going to run for governor because that was three hours later, you know." And <laughs> talk to him tomorrow morning. Well, I think I'm right. So he uh, that that was kind of an ongoing inside joke. That what time if you, if if you knew what mansion at that time was going to run for, you'd ha- you'd say, "Well, what time of day did you talk to him?" <laughs> That must make it interesting to cover him in the state. I was, I was oh, it's, it's fascinating, and he's. I tell you, he's he's very accessible. Comes on the show all the time, and uh, it's it's. And West Virginia is a small state; everybody knows everybody, right? So it's right. actually, but and and we don't have professional sports, but we have politics, and that's kind of our professional sports. We have fun with that, sports, as it should be, in my opinion. I mean, you both, <laughs> obviously. Anyway, listen. This was uh, well. You have the Mountaineers, right? Obviously, yeah. Mountaineers. We do have we do have the Mountaineers. That's big, and we have Marshall Thundering Herd. But politics are, and and the beauty about covering politics in West Virginia, you really need to know about nine people, you know. <laughs> And then right? find out what's going on. <laughs> if you get those nine people, you're pretty much covered. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's yeah. not bad, actually. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty good. I wouldn't mind having a situation like that. Anyway, listen, this was fascinating. I'm so appreciative of you coming on and talking today. This is, you know, this is a, I feel like we're going to be talking more and more over the next year or two, trying to understand, trying to, you know, figure out what Joe Manchin's thinking and what he's going to do next. But this was a great start, and I really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you so much, Hoppy. This was a wonderful conversation. Well, Michael, it's, it's my pleasure, and I certainly am flattered you asked me. Thank you again. Appreciate it.